excited and privileged to introduce Convy2x distinguished keynote speaker, Major General Dr. Joseph Schmid, NASA flight surgeon and Major General retired, mobilization assistant to the Surgeon General of the Air Force. Dr. Schmid's patients are current and past astronauts and family members. These include an X-15 pilot, uh, shuttle, space station, and Apollo astronauts who've walked the moon. He became a aquanaut during a 12-day mission to NOAA's undersea Aquarius habitat during NASA's NEMO-12. Dr. Schmidt has been a crew surgeon for shuttle missions STF-116, 120, and 126, and for multiple long-duration missions supporting the International Space Station, including Soyuz launches and landing operations in Kazakhstan, for operation for expeditions, 18, 24, 29, 39, 48, 56, and 63. <laughs> he serves as the lead for medical operations for the new Orion vehicle and Artemis missions that will return humans to the moon. Dr. Schmidt is the previous lead for space medicine training responsible for training medical students, other flight surgeons, astronaut crew, medical officers and biomedical engineers. He is co-director for the Aerospace Medicine Residency at the University of Texas Branch Galveston and has also led missions teaching life-saving surgical skills in Nepal, Rwanda, Mexico, Romania, Bosnia, and Sri Lanka. Please extend a warm welcome this morning to the phenomenal NASA practicing telehealth physician, Joe Schmidt. Thank you very much, Tori, and the Telehealth Journal and uh, Florida International University for sponsoring me to come down. And we're going to fly through aerospace medicine and space medicine this morning. And I'm so excited to be here to talk with you today. Uh, we're going to have we're going to talk about aerospace medicine and space medicine, and I'm gonna, the second half of my talk is going to be holoportation. So I'm speaking at uh, 17,500 miles an hour right now, and we're going to roll through about 60 slides this morning. Uh, Okay, I'm starting off with uh, Tom Stafford's quote, how far can we go, how fast can we get there, and who among us is, is willing to do this? And I think that's what telemedicine is. I'm barely old enough, but I remember uh, 1969, my mother woke me up uh, to see them landing on the moon, and I uh, stuck around and watched all the Apollo missions, and include the one on the right there is Apollo 17, that's Gene Cernan taking off on, from the surface of the moon. Uh, 2001, I became his family physician for the next 17 years. It's incredible to be able to hear somebody tell you what it's like to land on the moon. The bottom picture there is uh, Alexei Leonov, first human to walk in space, and then Tom Stafford. And that was at the height of the Cold War when the Soviets and the United States got together and were cooperating in space. And that's why I feel proud to be working at NASA right now in the height of tensions currently. I worked shuttle before now, also doing uh, Soyuz and ISS. Uh, and SpaceX is one of our partners, commercial providers. Boeing's coming online as well. Blue Origin and the Ryan mission, as mentioned, we're going to take humans back to the uh, surface of the moon and on to Mars. Uh, this is a picture of the, the down here in Florida, the Kennedy Space Center. The people in the back are the uh, astronauts and the folks up front and the flight surgeons taking care of them. And in Mission Control is the other place I work, interacting with engineers throughout the mission itself. 
And the first time I went to NASA, I, knew, I could understand that they were speaking English, but I had no idea what they were talking about because the terminology, et cetera, is just incredibly different. Uh, but you learn a lot of engineering by working there. We launched from Kazakhstan, which is on the other side of the planet, of course, uh, from Houston. Uh, and it's almost as large as uh, Western Europe. And I'll show you some pictures of why we launched and land there. This is Nur Sultan, their new uh, uh, city, uh, central city there is their uh, capital. It looks like Oz, but the rest of the country is an ancient seabed. It's flat. That's why they launch and land there. Also, the orbital dynamics are there such that back in the 50s, 50s they designed so they would launch their missions out of Kazakhstan to avoid uh, China, actually, and that's why they launched. This is a picture of the Soyuz being, uh, it was actually produced there in Moscow, and then they ship it all the way down to Baikonur. Basically, it's a ballistic missile with some strap-on boosters. Uh, it, this is, they use the same uh, solid rocket motors to uh, take the vehicle uh, in, in emergency, this, this, the escape tower, and then it launches. We go out there and spend two weeks in quarantine with our crew members, and then they launch to space. That's about a, a kilometer and a half away from you, so you can really feel it in your chest when they launch. It's, and uh, it just feels wonderful to be part of that. We take care of our crew members when they get on orbit as well. This is a picture of the actual ro uh, Russian side, one of their hatches, and for the next six months we take care of them in orbit. Um, space is a dangerous place, just like on the Earth. The upper left-hand corner is a picture of one of the Soyuz where it uh, crashed. Uh, Apollo 1 uh, is on the lower left-hand side. We had a massive fire, of course, inside. I was in, uh, in the college when, Colum when the Challenger happened, and I was working at NASA when Columbia happened as well. And we're always preparing for those things. There are lots of hazards associated with spaceflight, just like in medicine and life overall. But in the space environment, the reduced gravity can be deleterious to your your health, radiation we're always exposed to while we're there. It's a few millimeters away from vacuum, and then we've got a lot of space to breathe. It's in orbit. The environment's in, it's a confining environment for the next six months they're in orbit. They get exposed to lots of noise and vibration. We recirculate the air, same air that's been there for 20 years or so. We bring up additional supplies of water, et cetera, and then we recirculate a lot of our waste as well. The missions, we take care of the throughout their mission, from training to launch to on six months on orbit, and now, as well as when they return uh, and it is absolutely the most remote place, um, 210 nautical miles above us and 17,500 miles an hour in orbit. And I see my patients uh, right when they launch, and then six months later I get to lay hands on them again. Between that and then, uh, now and then, and I've got basically a telephone to be able to talk to them, uh, very remote. Uh, circadian shifts, they go through the orbit every 90 minutes or so, and so they're going in and out of sunlight, and we have to actually program their bodies uh, to, you know, sleep and not sleep. And then EVAs, we also support those. It's like a reverse scuba dive, so they're going from 14.7 pounds per square inch out to 4.3 pounds per square inch, we have to avoid the bends. Um, Spaceflight is associated with uh, motion sickness, and we'll show some pictures here of that, as well as uh, of how we counter countermeasures against that and affects other body systems as well. The reason that uh, no one still understands how people get space adaptation syndrome, we take Top Gun pilots up, and 70% of them feel nauseous when they get in orbit, and other folks who are geologists and, and uh, other people that, are, that don't get any issues whatsoever. Um, and what the thoughts are that they have some issues with their inner ear and then the accelerometers in their brain, brain can't put those things together as well as they lose proprioception when it comes to their vision. Things move as well as they, they can't feel when they're standing. They're not standing anymore. So those inputs are, are confused to the brain and they feel sick. Okay. 
and, and this is a joke whether they use some of their Amos's bags or not, but uh, about 70% of people, that, but we've got some medication. We use Phanergan usually at night, and it actually makes them feel a whole lot better. Uh, fluid shifts also happen. When I'm standing here, I've got all my blood is going down to my legs. When they go to orbit, everything equalizes, so everything comes up towards the heart and to the kidneys, and so they lose about two to three liters of fluid. You really have to urinate quite a bit in the first couple, three days, and you see these pictures of them where they've got... Uh, um, uh, uh, swollen faces, etc., and then the reverse happens when they come back. When they come back from orbit, they lose uh, three three liters. But actually, when they return, and so they get no systemic risk to return, and their heart's not as functioning as, as quite as well as it was before they left. And so we actually have to give them some fluid and, and get them to respond. Uh, here's a picture of one, even one of the early Mercury astronauts on the left-hand side. You can see him; it's got a normal face, and on the right-hand side, he's really kind of got a swollen face from all that fluid. Uh, muscle skeletal changes: we lose muscle. Uh, any of our muscle, like our quadriceps and our gastrocnemius, is those anti-gravity muscles. Those as well, we lose uh, strength. Uh, they lose aerobic capacity. If they don't exercise, they'll lose about 1% of bone calcium per month. It's like an accelerated osteoporosis. You don't want to have that, of course. And so we've got lots of good countermeasures now. We've got an exercise treadmill, a bicycle, as well as a resistive exercise device, and we've been able to uh, to stem those those losses. Radiation, they're continuously exposed to radiation. We've got the, the Van Allen belts to protect us here on Earth, but they, they can also collect um, uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, electrons and protons that are accelerated out of our current mass ejection from the sun, so to speak. Uh, and that's all, you know, we have sunspots and we're currently going through one of our uh, uh, maximum uh, production of those things, as well as they're getting exposed to galactic cosmic rays, which are basically iron atoms that come screaming through and will, you know, cause damage to your DNA. Um, space medicine, we have physicians that are assigned to each of the crews. Uh, we take care of them throughout their mission. I'm on call right now for the space station, as a couple, three of my colleagues back at home are as well. We can take telephone calls. We get 15 minutes with them once a week, and then they can also call us via cell phone uh, after hours as well. We, do, we are also responsible for the human physiology impacts of depressurization, fire, tox releases, radiation, and other events on board. And again, these folks, uh, my communication with them is through these track and daily re relay satellites. We've had medical events throughout the Apollo missions to shuttle and onto station. Uh, we're not going to go through all these, but the idea of all the things that can happen to you while they're there. This is a short list, too. It's probably about 10% of the things that we see there. We do have medical kits on board. We have them go through some hours of medical training. But you, as you know, you prepare for the, the, the worst, and you hopefully you get the best, but they'll have other things that will show up that, uh, that you didn't have on your list, and you have to figure out a way to treat it with what you have on board. Here's one of the things that kind of surprised us, space flight associated neuroocular syndrome. Folks in the shuttle missions were getting better uh, distant vision and their near vision was worsening even after two weeks. Now we're seeing the reasons why. Now we have ultrasound on board and we can actually see some of the changes in the, in the eyeball. You know, it's normally oval, in the, but in, in zero gravity it becomes flattened in the back. They also get neural thick, uh, thickening of the, of the uh, nerve that comes out of the uh, optic uh, uh, and as well as out of the, uh, uh, out of the brain to the optic uh, disc itself. And then they also get some scotomas as well and some uh, vision loss. Uh, we do simulations, of course, much like any other clinical simulations. Ours involve uh, the International Space Station. We have uh, patient simulators as well as we have to interact with all the folks in mission control. Here's a picture of the, uh, the vehicle coming down, the Soyuz vehicle coming down there in Kazakhstan. On the right-hand side, you see the vehicle under the parachute. On the left-hand side, you see the, the rescue forces. And as Americans, we're part of that when they, we have an American on board. And that little V that you see in the back there is actually a set of, uh, of tourists that somehow always know where the vehicle's coming down, and they're always 
out there. It's kind of crazy if it's, uh, if it's accessible to uh, a road. And the reasons we have to be prepared for trauma there is it's coming down onto a hard surface in the last possible, we, they get about five meters above the ground and there's a radio altimeter that fires some retro rockets to slow it down and you'll see that and that's what that smoke is. And then the next picture will show where there's a divot where the actual vehicle hit and it gets dragged off in, in the wind. So we're, we only have what we have on our backs when we're out there in, in our training to be able to take care of them. Here's a picture of the Soyuz itself. It's, it's come through the, uh, through the air and it's been slowed down and that's an ablative heat shield. That's why it turns black there. And then here's yours truly, a flight surgeon looking inside to find his patients. And it's very, very small. It's built in the same technology that was built in the 50s for the shape of it. And you can see it's very tight in there. You can barely see the uh, cosmonauts and the astronauts there. It's almost like an old VW bug where everybody's sitting in the front seat. All three people are sitting in the front seat there. Very, very tight. Uh, and then they go through their acclimatization. This is Drew Forster coming out. And after some, a period of acclimatization, some fluids, they're feeling a whole lot better. Very small group of medical people on the left-hand side is a, a Russian nurse. And we've got astronauts and other folks behind us taking care of them. And this is just always a pleasure to be working with the Russians out on these operational missions. Um, we're continuing. We're, we are limited. We'd love to take a CT machine, an MRI machine, but we're limited when it comes to power, mass, and volume. And like anything else, I add time and money, is that because it takes a lot of time and money to do these things. We've got to figure out to how to extend our technology to be able to go back to the moon and Mars. We also have analog environments, not only in microgravity, but we also have the undersea uh, Aquarius undersea habitat. And then here, a simulator, we take folks down to Antarctica and other places out uh, that, uh, that have those. And that's the origin of holoport which is the second part of my talk, is we had a, uh, an, a physician in, in Houston, which is the left side picture there, and the right hand side is Aquarius Habitat off the key, coast of Key Largo, which is just south of here. And uh, we did a, a advanced trauma life support. We simulated we had a patient with a tension pneumothorax, and that's the diver there that simulated that on the right-hand side. And then the left-hand side was Chris, Samantha Cristoforetti, who's an Italian astronaut, and we talked her through using a HoloLens to how to, to uh, treat that tension pneumothorax. And the ideas from that came us, gave us the idea of where we could take the next step, which is holoportation, which is we used a Microsoft HoloLens and a, um, a Connect camera, which is a Connect camera, which is like a webcam, has LIDAR and it can actually paint your, your uh, figure and then transmit that. And this picture here shows that. Actually, it's one of the other developers we use, uh, AXA Software, as well as uh, 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 Fernando de la Pena de Yaca. He, he and Nathan Reem, who is this picture here, they were both the developers to extend the Microsoft software. And uh, this picture is in Houston, but the guy that's in the picture is actually in Huntsville, Alabama, being holoported to that other location. Um, we did a, a tech demo, which normally takes at NASA, it takes about 10 years or so to get to an experiment on board. We were able to do ours within about two, two years total. And we did our tech demo where we actually had one-way holoportation and two-way holoportation. And the idea is our use cases were to use for private medical conferences, private psychological conference. We also want to bring the family, uh, the crew member down to the family, and then also the general public is in our, in our next set. And so we are concept of operations where we're going to take a flight surgeon up to the space station. Lower half left-hand side shows the lens and then the right-hand side shows a flight surgeon there. The system we're not going to go through, this is basically we use that HoloLens camera, or the Connect camera, the HoloLens, as well as uh, some software to get, uh, access software to get it on board. Um, 
And as you can imagine, working at NASA, you have to push things through. Uh, we have four or five firewalls. We did not use the internet. It was, it was within our own network. And then it goes up through uh, White Sands, New Mexico, up to the tracking and data relay satellite, and then onto the space station. Um, and we did it with five megabytes of bandwidth uh, because of those limitations. And because of that, on October 8th in 2021, we were the first humans to be holoported to orbit, which was, I thought it was a very interesting thing, coming from a, tech, you know, from a telephone to a video, Skype or, or what, what have you to actually uh, being on board the space station. And so to the astronaut who was wearing a HoloLens, we were present in the middle of the lab there with our image. Uh, he, he or she could walk around and actually see that image and interact with us. Um, so uh, I'm going to go through a couple more of these. And so Thomas Pesquet, which is a European astronaut, we were, he was the first to actually have us interact with him. Uh, the session was very, very stable. Uh, we did some uh, ex examples of how we could do a, a simple examination. And then we grabbed everybody who was in the mission control room in that particular room, and we were all holoported to orbit. Um, and it went viral. We put a, a, a PAO event out, and uh, it just went through. Uh, we, we saw it on Forbes, CNN, uh, uh, CNN, et cetera. I was even asked by my brother-in-law. I was vacationing in Japan, and my brother-in-law asked me. This is a small island near Taiwan where my wife's from. And he said, I heard about this thing on the radio called about a, a teleportation. And uh, you guys, I know you work at NASA. Do you know those guys? And so it really went viral. Um, so we did the first teleportation handshake on orbit, and then... Um, the, it was interesting because the crew members would interact with it, and it was not perfect. Uh, it was pixelated as well as this thing called Uncanny Valley, which is uh, where it's almost human-like, and, and you're not sure if you can trust it or not. And this particular crew member, uh, she may have moved closer to the, uh, the image itself, and she says, that's the first time I've ever had a flight surgeon invading my personal space because she felt I was right there. So we have you know, some work to do with it, but I knew I had a good effect because we had that kind of emotional um, uh, re response. The second thing we did was a same team did a two-way holoportation. So we actually brought the crew member down from space into the mission control center, and I could see the racks behind him and the crew member right in front of me. And I can just share with you, it felt like I was looking into a portal of the future to have that interaction. Again, that person is 17,500 miles an hour in orbit, but now he's also right in, in front of me. Just an amazing experience myself. Um, we tried to figure out how to do a visual field, and so that's the reason I used the old uh, the Vulcan, how many fingers am I holding up? That was the idea behind that. Uh, my brother-in-law came up with that idea, and then we, as I mentioned, we grabbed everybody who was in the room. And I, I've talked about the limitations. We had only five megabytes that we could work with and no money to do this, but we went ahead and did this. Um, so it took a large team to be able to do this, of course, and our next steps are to use, as, as uh, Tori mentioned, uh, haptics and using AI and uh, some other future environments we're going to go through. The other thing that I'm going to finish up with is that the communication is difficult between here and the space station. Think about the moon where it's going to use 0.8 seconds. There was a bit of a delay, but if we're going to go on to Mars, it'll be an 8 to 20 minute one-way transmission, and then we're going to have to wait until that telephone call comes back, another 8 to 20 minutes, and also not to, with no ability to be able to uh, space evac anybody back home. So there are going to be challenges not only from communication, but also for um, transport. Um, and I put my email up here as well as please uh, link, uh, get with me with LinkedIn. The whole reason to come down here is to explore with you all when it comes to telemedicine and to start our collaboration. And again, thank you very much, Tori, for this incredible invitation. And I think I ended up right on time. So I hope to meet with you all afterwards and we can uh, talk with uh, any questions you might have about space medicine as well. Thank you very much, Tori.